Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on June 9th, 2016, and is titled Chain of Title, Foreclosure Fraud, and the Fight to Protect New York Homeowners, and features David Dayan, author of Chain of Title, Amber Green, Director of Policy at the Office of the Public Advocate in New York City, Jacob Inwald, Director of Foreclosure Prevention at Legal Services NYC, Christy Peel, Executive Director of the Center for NYC Neighborhoods, and Reed Kramer, Director of the Asset Building Program at New America. I'm Reed Kramer. I direct the Asset Building Program at New America, and it's committed to the idea of promoting financial security and opportunity and mobility uh, by helping families um, build up their savings and asset-based. The, 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 the idea behind this work is there's many things beyond income that matter to families and how they get ahead and how they navigate their lives, uh, including savings and, and, and assets. Uh, home ownership, um, even for lower income families, is really part of that process. But, uh, and we've seen that, we've got data, we've got experience, but it does also introduce some substantial risk uh, as well. And uh, I think as the housing bubble inflated, we were observing a lot more uh, predatory products uh, in the market, in the fringe financial sector, that we knew were going to create some, some real problems. And, and I think um, that's had real world consequences. Uh, many families were pushed into products initially that they couldn't afford, uh, they didn't understand, and they also didn't need. A lot of times they could have qualified for a better product uh, at Prime. They were pushed into other products. Uh, so that's one part of the problem we have in the, in the, in the financial service marketplace, uh, which really did become clear when we had the, uh, the crash. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, really, there was some, some, some tragic uh, and nefarious practices were, were also in play that really could have been preventable. Uh, but we had substantial foreclosure fraud, and families were evicted from their homes, often based on very little um, evidence, uh, or, or we're going to hear about that, the lack of uh, evidence, uh, you know, by corporate entities that had no legal right to foreclose. And this is the story that David tells in, in his book, um, quite compellingly. And uh, let's see, although David started out uh, as a political blogger, uh, which is now, I think, a category of uh, writing career, um, he, he's really today, uh, I think, one of the country's leading financial journalists uh, and, and writers and columnists. And he's doing great work weekly for the New Republic and, and Fiscal Times. But really, any, you, you write for a lot of outlets. Anytime you see his byline, you should read it. Um, a lot of good uh, content. Uh, I like his work on postal banking, which is a whole other session we can have, a little drier. Uh, but this book uh, you know, has characters. It has a narrative arc. Um, it's a really compelling uh, tale. Um, and I think that's what we're going to hear about uh, tonight. But it's, it's an important book for, for other reasons. It's not just a good read. It, it elevates some important ideas about corporate practice, the importance of consumer protection, uh, the role that, it, that activists play in kind of uncovering this work. Um, and then um, beyond what the activists can do, uh, sometimes speaking truth to power isn't enough and we need policy. We need public policy, we need other protections. And if we think things like home ownership and savings and assets are important and property rights are important, well, we need the other things uh, in play. We need a rule of law. We need some of the consumer protections um, in, in the marketplace. 
Um, so uh, David's going to give the highlights of his book. Then we've got some other perspectives here. Um, uh, Jacob Inwald is the Director of Foreclosure Prevention at New York Legal Services, Legal Services of New York City. Legal Services NYC. NYC. Um, and then Amber Green uh, uh, also um, is here. She's Director of Policy in the Office of the Public Advocate of New York City. And then Christy Peel, I'll introduce when she arrives. Um, <laughs> and, um, but with that, uh, David, why don't you uh, take it away? All right. Well, thank you, Reed. And uh, we did one of these in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, just like me, you came up on the train. So uh, thank you for your support yeah, and New wonderful. America's support uh, for the book and, and for my work. I, I, I deeply appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for, for coming. Uh, I, got, I, have, I have family here tonight. My parents are here. They came up from Philadelphia. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's rare that my dad opens a book, much less reads one. So uh, I, I, I appreciate that as well. Um, so uh, this is a story about people. Uh, it's about people who sacrifice everything in their lives in search uh, out of a belief in justice. Uh, it's about movements and how movements get started and get together and uh, whether or not they succeed. Uh, it's about the lessons we can take from movements and activism. Uh, and, and, and it's really about uh, how people with no resources or expertise go up against some of the most powerful institutions in this country. Uh, and the complex mortgage transactions are just kind of a sidelight to that. Uh, but this ultimately at the heart is a story about uh, what you do when you're put in this impossible situation, when that knock comes on your door uh, and you're one of the millions of families who uh, finds themselves uh, served with foreclosure papers. We, uh, it's a terrible crime of public policy that we don't actually have good statistics on how many people uh, were actually foreclosed on uh, uh, since the financial crisis. The best number that we have uh, is, is generated by uh, people who are somewhat self-interested because they're funded by banks. Uh, but the best number we have is 6.2 million uh, uh, families foreclosed on, and that's not counting those who were involved in short sales, uh, who uh, uh, gave up their keys uh, before they fell into foreclosure and all of that. Uh, when you get down to it, you're probably talking about 10 million people, at least at the lowest level, who were affected by this crisis. And uh, sadly enough, we don't really hear about them very much, uh, both in our policy conversations and in the popular discussion. Uh, there are over 400 books about the financial crisis. There uh, is actually a website where someone has taken the time to catalog how many books there have been about the fi financial crisis. And a precious few of them even mention homeowners, let alone uh, focus on them in a major way. Um, I told this uh, anecdote at New America that uh, in, in DC, that there was a movie called 99 Homes. It was one of the few movies to really focus and drill down on the, on the, the foreclosure crisis and look at it from the lens of homeowners. And I interviewed that director, and he said he was looking around uh, for how to depict a foreclosure in a movie. And so he, he cast himself back and looked through cinema history to try to figure out what does it look like when someone's foreclosed on in a movie. 
And the last time he could find one was the Grapes of Wrath in 1939. So it is just the fact that there's an invisibility around foreclosures and foreclosure victims. And, uh, And it's also at the ground level there's an invisibility because people don't talk about their foreclosures. There's a lot of shame Uh, and isolation and humiliation. Uh, We have this ethic in this country that if you miss a mortgage payment, uh, you have failed the duties of citizenship, that you are uh, uh, somewhat lesser of of a productive individual in society. And that eats at people and they don't don't tell their neighbors and they don't know where to go when they get into trouble with their loan. Uh, uh, It was one of the animating principles of one of my characters was to find a support group to create a place, a safe space where people could talk about this issue and and, and talk about what happened to them. Um, And uh, I really wanted to take a look at the crisis from this ground level, from the people who were most powerfully affected by it. And so I'd start with that knock at the door. Uh, You know, uh, Lisa Epstein, a cancer nurse uh, who sold one property and bought another at exactly the wrong time in uh, February of 2007 when the uh, bubble was collapsing in South Florida and could never sell the co-op that she was in uh, while she had to purchase, while she purchased a mortgage on a house and uh, got into trouble, spent months, knew she was going to have a problem. She also had some financial problems. Her husband lost his job. Her daughter was diagnosed with spina bifida. Uh, there were a lot of financial pressures on on this uh, on Lisa. She had an 803 credit score going into this. She had never missed a payment on anything in her entire life. Uh, she knew nine months out that doing her budget, she was going to run out of money. She she calls her mortgage servicing company and says, I, I, I'm, I'm giving you a lot of lead time. What can I do? She gets the runaround. She never talks to the same person twice. Uh, finally, after months and months and months of, of you know, them losing her paperwork for her application, uh, she finally uh, is told by one of their representatives, uh, well, you know, you really have to miss a few payments in order for us to, uh, you know, come to you and do something about it. That's who gets first in line, people who are in default. So you really have to miss some payments if you're going to get any help from us. And she said, well, I've never missed a mortgage payment. I've never missed any payment in my entire life. I, I just don't want to do that. But she had no choice. And, and she, was, she wasn't explicitly told, but she was kind of told that, that that's what she had to do. And so she misses three mortgage payments and she calls and uh, says, okay, I've missed three mortgage payments. Now can I get some help? And they said, we'll be right out. And when they came right out, they served her with foreclosure papers. Um, and this was very common, actually. This was a, a fairly common tactic of the mortgage servicing industry, which actually profits off defaults. But that's a whole other story, which is also in the book. Um, the interesting thing about when Lisa got her, her mortgage papers, her foreclosure papers, is that she read them. Because that's a, that was a very unusual circumstance. Uh, 95% of all foreclosure cases are, go uncontested. And a lot of that has to do with the shame and humiliation and isolation that foreclosures breed. Um, But Lisa read them. And and the first thing that she read was that the entity that was foreclosing on her was a company called U.S. Bank. 
And uh, I'm not sure if there's a U.S. bank in New York, but there is no U.S. bank in Florida. And uh, she had never heard of U.S. Bank. She had never obviously done a transaction with U.S. Bank. Uh, she thought it was a fake name, uh, like a, a name of a bank in a movie, U.S. Bank. It sounds fictitious. Uh, Roadrunner or, or... Yes, uh, Acme, Acme yeah, Bank Acme Services, bank. yeah. Um, but U.S. Bank is real. Uh, and, and what she... Uh, she basically went through the steps of trying to figure out who was this bank and why are they suing me? So she calls U.S. Bank and they say, we don't know who Lisa Epstein is. We have no record of Lisa Epstein. She said, but you're suing me, actually. You're, you're trying to take my home away. Uh, why don't you know me? And they say, well, can't help you. We don't know who you are. Um, and what she does is sort of that spins her curiosity into the kind of information that got out in the movie The Big Short. So uh, what we learn is that she had a mortgage with a non-bank uh, originator, and uh, that, that originator immediately sold her loan to J.P. Morgan Chase, who then sold that loan three or four other times, who then sold it into a trust administered by U.S. Bank, who was the trustee administering that. Uh, Wells Fargo was somehow in there somewhere, too. Uh, the servicer was a different division of Chase that actually was the investment bank that bought the loan. And finally, out of that trust uh, were uh, these revenue streams that went out to investors uh, in mortgage-backed securities, uh, anywhere from an Indiana public pension fund to a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, uh, and, and just all over the country and all over the world. And so Lisa understands that after some, some research that you know, her loan has been traded back and forth like playing cards and uh, without really her uh, knowing about it or her consent in any way. Um, and the problem that Lisa eventually uncovers, and she uncovers it in her own case first, is that when all of those steps that I told you about, all those transactions and transfers were done, there are very precise legal methods that have been in place in this country since the 1630s, 150 years before, before we the Constitution. <laughs> yes, we had property laws, property records laws that, uh, that dictate that when you do a transfer, you do an, an actual deliberate pen and paper signature. This goes back to like the statute of frauds in England in the 1680s. Uh, you, you do very precise so everyone knows who was the purchaser and who was the seller at every step along the chain, a chain of title, which you're supposed to be able to go into a public office because we thought this information should be public so that everyone has surety, a public office that would, uh, you would be able to look up who was the uh, uh, owner of that property at every step along that chain from the moment of construction all the way to the present day. And that's what was not done during the housing bubble. Uh, uh, whether it was simply inconvenient or too costly uh, to execute those documents and to hire people to assign those documents and to transfer them and to send them to a document custodian and to make sure they got into the trust and trusts are governed very specifically, most under New York State trust law, that say you have to fund the trust within 90 days of the closing date or else you actually don't have a mortgage-backed security. You have a non-mortgage-backed security. You have a nothing-backed security uh, if you don't get those loans in. 
and if it all breaks down, you have ruptured the chain of title. And uh, I suppose this might not have been a problem if uh, everybody paid their mortgage and then you could uh, release this with a similarly fake piece of paper and uh, maybe everything would go okay. However, we had a housing bubble and we had a housing bubble collapse. And after that collapse, hundreds of thousands, millions of people went into default. And suddenly, these entities that had to prove that they owned these loans and could enforce the foreclosure on them, just like if I said to Reed that I, I, uh, you stole my car, I would have to come up with some evidence that I owned the car and you stole it. I couldn't write on a napkin that, you know, After this is fact. my car. And then, and then put that in front of a judge and have the judge go, well, that's a napkin, that's, that looks pretty good. So uh, the problem is that's exactly what the banks did effectively, is that they mocked up these documents to prove that they had standing, which is a very uh, particular legal concept, uh, to foreclose in all of these cases all over the country. Uh, they used third parties, they used law firms, uh, sometimes they took it in-house, but what, however they did it, sometimes they used offshore companies like in Panama. Uh, there was a dock shop in Panama that would create these documents uh, uh, that Lisa found out and actually uh, sleuthed around and found a guy who was in Panama and talked to him through Facebook, and she did this private detective work to find out who this uh, company was in Panama. But um, at the end of the day, there were false documents, and they were used over and over and over again uh, to try to prove that there was uh, legal reasons to foreclose in these cases. And Lisa found this in her own case. Uh, hello. Welcome. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, oh, thanks uh, for bringing the book. That's right. There you go. There's a visual. That's why she was so late. Yeah. She's taking the picture. And, um, so Lisa found this in her own case. She uh, got the mortgage assignment, and that is the transfer document that goes from one entity to another. Uh, and in her case, uh, it, it was uh, an assignment to US Bank dated in May of 2009. However, she was foreclosed on in February of 2009. So by the evidence she was given, US Bank did not own the loan at the time that they actually foreclosed on her. Um, so- a unique experience? This was a, a decidedly not unique experience. Yeah. Um, this happened over and over and over again. And Lisa didn't just use this information to uh, pursue uh, a remedy in her own case. She used this information to try to find patterns. She dug through the public records, both online and online. She was a cancer nurse. She worked at a hospital that was about a mile away from the county courthouse in Palm Beach County, Florida. This whole story takes place in Palm Beach County. Uh, she would walk every day on her lunch hour, 12 minutes, uh, go to the public uh, records, dig through them a little bit, uh, and then walk back 12 minutes. Gave her 36 minutes to look through. If she was pressed for time, she would run, and then she would get an extra 10 minutes uh, to look through the public records. She went to the county courthouse so often that she began to get mail there. Uh, from, from homeowners who uh, were looking uh, for her expertise because within uh, a number of weeks, she became one of the foremost experts on this whole idea of foreclosure fraud because there simply wasn't, there weren't a lot of people in her orbit that she felt uh, that were talking about this and that were, you know, like I said, foreclosure is very silent. 
People don't talk about it. So just by speaking up, she became someone people flocked to. And uh, they flocked to places online. Uh, a lot of the story is really a story of the early blogosphere. You mentioned I was a political blogger. This was a story about people who got together on blogs and uh, had this thing in common, which was they were all these foreclosure victims who were trying to understand this fraudulent activity that was going on with their loans. And so in the comment sections of one of these websites called Living Lives, she runs into this guy, Michael Redman. Michael Redman is a car salesman. Uh, he works at an auto dealership in, in Palm Beach County. And uh, he built his dream house from the ground up with his wife. And uh, two years into that, uh, while he was paying every monthly payment on time, uh, he gets a call from his mortgage servicing company, Washington Mutual, and they say to him, uh, we're sorry, we miscalculated the escrow on your loan, and now you owe 35% more on your loan. And uh, also you owe it for the last two years because you owe back uh, what we didn't calculate correctly. So uh, uh, if we'll get that next week, that would be, that'd be fantastic. Uh, so, so um, and he couldn't afford that. If he knew that was the price of the loan, he wouldn't have gotten it. So uh, after some haggling, then they fall into foreclosure. And he finds, uh, when he gets uh, his piece of paper, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase came, claims to be the creditor on his loan. And he knows that actually Fannie Mae is the creditor on his loan. And when he gets the mortgage assignment, it's assigned to J.P. Morgan Chase, but the people doing the assigning are employees of J.P. Morgan Chase. So they're assigning the mortgage to himself, themselves. Uh, and so he, much like Lisa, gets very obsessed about this self-taught legal education from, from citizen activists, citizen lawyers, citizen journalists, uh, and they find each other. And uh, uh, Michael actually creates a public documents uh, to how to find fraud in the public records. And uh, he ends up uh, going on a, a panel, a conference, to teach others how to find this fraud. And, and that's where he and Lisa meet in real life. And they go uh, to dinner that night, and they make a pact that we are going to get this information out. We are going to find someone in authority who's going to do something about this. And they begin to build a movement. They start their own websites. They start uh, what they call foreclosure fraud happy hours in uh, Florida, where they bring together uh, lawyers and homeowners uh, who are trying to work on this issue to collaborate. They post these fraudulent documents at their websites. They uh, post depositions when they get them, working with local lawyers of individuals who uh, admit that they sign thousands of documents a week and have absolutely no idea what they're signing. Um, these are people who made 12 bucks an hour and are the lowest paid bank vice presidents in history. Yeah, just lost myself, hold on. <clears throat> For about 20 different banks, actually. Uh, Linda Green, <clears throat> Linda Green, who uh, was one of the individuals at one of these document processing companies, a third party, she uh, was named as the bank vice president for almost 20 different banks. And um, to speed up the assembly line at this uh, particular third party company, which is called DocX, they would have other employees sign on her behalf. 
And so if you go on the public records, you see Linda Green uh, uh, handwritten 15 different ways in, in the public records. Uh, and they used Linda Green to do that because her name was easy to spell. That's what they said. Um, so the other $12 an hour employees could easily do this. And they were, they were just cogs in what I call in the book the great foreclosure machine. Uh, these were people who, uh, in a tough economy, were told to do this, were told they had the authority to do this, and were told, if you don't want to do it, we'll get someone who will, uh, and you'll be fired. So uh, this was cogs in a machine, uh, all working to take people's homes away through illegal means. And so Lisa and Michael really set out to expose this, and they pick up Lynn Simoniak along the way. She was exactly sort of the wrong person to foreclose on. She was a white-collar fraud specialist. Um, now, she was an insurance fraud, but she knew the tricks and traps to look for. Uh, in her case, she found that a witness on her mortgage assignment was actually in state prison in Oklahoma at the time. He allegedly signed the mortgage assignment. And interestingly enough, he was in state prison for identity theft, uh, even though his identity was being stolen and forged uh, to put on these documents. So uh, Lynn comes in, and Lynn actually has contacts. She gets a federal investigation going. Uh, Lisa and Michael meet with state prosecutors. Uh, they are beginning to get some traction here. Uh, and they succeed. At the end of 2010, the leading five mortgage servicing companies in this country stopped foreclosing on people because they could no longer do so legally. Uh, and they withdraw all of uh, many of these fraudulent affidavits and fraudulent signatures. Um, and that's about the first two thirds of the book. And if you put it down and close it, uh, it is a very inspiring book. Um, uh, because I don't want to spoil the ending, but absolutely nobody uh, in a position of authority really goes to jail for any of this. Uh, or. Uh, there really isn't a lot of accountability or even good outcomes for homeowners uh, at, a, at, a, at a macro level uh, after this conduct. The consequences were very, very limited. So why did I want to write this book? Uh, number one, as I said, I, I really wanted to tell this story of the financial crisis from this lens uh, of the people who were most powerfully affected by it, from, from the lens of homeowners and their struggles, their 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 shame and how some of them overcame that and worked together to try to find a solution. Uh, the second thing was, I wanted to tell the story that they did find a solution. They found a way that could have created better outcomes for homeowners all across this country. Uh, uh, and, and, and that is an important contribution, I think, that they made. So I wanted to recognize them for that. And finally, I wanted to sort of tell this alternate history. You know, uh, the first line of the book in the preface, it says, there is a rot at the heart of our democracy. And what I mean by that is that there, this nagging sense that there was a lack of accountability after this enormous crisis that took, uh, destroyed so many of uh, the financial lives and, and, and the real lives of so many people, and that nobody was really held to account. There was no justice in this. There was a two-tiered system of justice. And, who you were mattered more than what you did. And a lot of times we get a lot of excuses for that from top officials. Maybe they say uh, that there was things that were done that were unethical but not illegal, or that uh, juries just wouldn't understand, or that 
uh, uh, the cases were too complicated. And this is kind of a a book-long refutation of that, that if you had millions of pieces of false evidence that was presented in courts, in in any other context, if you presented false evidence to convict somebody, uh, usually that that case gets thrown out. In foreclosure law, it didn't. Uh, And you had three people who investigated this and did more investigation than the state or federal governmental apparatus combined uh, and put this on a silver platter for uh, the law enforcement officials to to take and run with it. And that was their entire idea. We are going to expose this. We're going to get it in the hands of someone who does something about it. And we can walk away and that will happen. And they did everything right. They, 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 they built the coalition. They went through the right channels. They assembled the evidence and they gave it away and nothing happened. And, and, and we have to reckon with why that is. And, and, and we can't accept uh, uh, the standard sort of narrative that, that, that nothing could have been done because there, there was an alternative here. So uh, I thank you for your interest in the book and uh, we'll move on with the yeah, discussion. Yeah. Thank I mean, you. Th- there's a lot of places to take the, the conversation. In, in DC, we had a, a policy conversation uh, around what some of the federal levers uh, could be around future consumer protections. But now I think let's, let's get a New York perspective. Um, Jay, we'll start with you, but Christy, you can wave to everybody. Christy Peel, Executive Director of um, Center for New York City Neighborhoods. So let's hear from um, Jay first, then Amber, and then Christy, and then we'll involve the room as well. So thank you for inviting yes. me, and thank you, David, for writing this book and bringing attention back on this issue. Um, I live and breathe the issues which are the subject of the book on a daily basis. I am the director of a foreclosure prevention practice at Legal Services NYC. So we are a, free, a provider of free civil legal services to low-income New Yorkers, and we actually have the largest foreclosure prevention uh, practice in the country. Um, So one point that I wanted to make, first of all, is that it looks like it's history because it's in a book. Hmm. Um, It's a um, living history. But we are still in the throes of a foreclosure crisis of staggering proportions. Here in New York, um, for the year in which we have the most recent statistics available, as of the end of 2015, there were about 90,000 foreclosure cases pending in New York Supreme Court which is the trial level court across New York State, that represents about 30% of the civil docket of the New York State courts. That's a staggering number. Um, And the other thing that I wanted to mention, which perhaps distinguishes um, um, our environment here in New York from the protagonists in your book, which is that here, this is a crisis that disproportionately impacts communities of color. Um, Just looking at, just looking at my, you know, those were the communities who the most toxic loan products were marketed to, uh, and those are the most vulnerable communities that when the economy tanks, uh, suffer um, more drastically. Looking at our own statistics, between 2009 and, and um, 2015, we handled 10,531 foreclosure cases, and citywide, um, 70% of those clients were uh, black or Latino. Uh, and if you look at just Brooklyn, it was a much higher percentage, 82%. So uh, I wanted to mention that. Um, and in fact, we do a lot of affirmative litigation going after some of those discriminatory loan products. We have a case going on in federal court right now uh, going after a particularly toxic loan product that Emigrant Savings Bank marketed uh, really primarily to low-income communities of color in Brooklyn and Queens. 
which had a tremendous failure rate, which was incredibly profitable uh, for the bank. Um, so as I said, we've been litigating these issues that you know um, are the subject of the book for years. Um, and the book does a great job of sort of capturing um, these issues. Um, the legal environment is slightly different in New York. So um, our- You don't have uh, court cases held in hallways? Then? Well, uh, the, the, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Florida. that that's not the case. That, I wouldn't say that's not the aspect of it that's different. Um, but our cases typically are resolved on motion practice. So a summary judgment where the plaintiff tries to prove that they don't need a trial, that this case should just get so. But we have the exact same evidentiary issues, and we have been challenging standing, and we are still litigating standing issues. Uh, we did a pretty good job educating the judiciary about these issues, um, even before this was getting uh, a lot of widespread media attention. And we had certain judges who, even on cases that were decided on default, took to investigating the records. Yeah. Um, but um, That's a big variable, it seems like. I mean, the, well, the, the it depends judges. on the judge. Yeah. But here's the problem. Um, we, uh, we are experiencing now what I've taken to calling foreclosure fatigue, okay? So our courts are tired of foreclosure cases, and they are tired of the drain on the resources that they represent, and they are tired of the fact that homeowners in New York, thanks largely to our Attorney General and the Center for New York City Neighborhoods, which administers um, this program, which actually funds free lawyers for people in foreclosure. And we've transformed the process so that it is a litigated, contested process, and you know what? The courts are tired of it. We've made their life inconvenient. And uh, so while you have individual judges who were looking at things very closely, those cases get appealed. And our intermediate appellate courts are, to be honest with you, quite hostile. And most of those decisions are getting reversed. So we are now litigating many, many appeals. Um, so uh, it's still, these are still frustrating issues. And, and, and by the way, these are issues that you can lose your right to challenge under New York law because people don't have lawyers when they get their complaint served. And they do not understand mortgage securitization or the fact that they have a standing challenge. And it will be, if they're lucky enough to get a lawyer, it's going to happen months and months and months later when they're participating in a court-mandated settlement conference process. Um, and uh, we are now having the appellate courts saying, um, A, the defense of standing is waived if you don't timely assert it within 20 days of when you get served, and it's not a jurisdictional defense under New York law. And B, a homeowner can almost never meet the legal standard for getting leave to put in a late answer. Our appellate division holds, well, you have no reasonable excuse. You have to have a reasonable excuse. And the fact that you spent two years in the settlement conference process trying to save your home, trying to negotiate a loan modification, the courts hold that's not a reasonable excuse because look, there's this boilerplate language on your summons that says you have to answer the complaint within 20 days. So there are lots of things you can be infuriated about and that's just sort of, you know, just barely scratching the surface and I was told I, was told I have only seven minutes and I probably already exhausted that and it's generally not a good idea yeah. to tell a litigator in New York yeah. that you only have seven minutes. <laughs> Let's go back so, to, to you in, in conversation, right. but yeah, Amber. Thank you. Thank you, Amon. Thank you so much. And thank you all for having us here. I'm the director of policy for the New York City Public Advocate, Letitia James. Um, and so we have a lot of 
you know, cases that we are thankful to be able to refer to legal services regarding clients, uh, constituents that come into our office seeking assistance. And usually when they are seeking assistance from our office, it's too late to really get involved and to be able to help. So for us, it's really about what can we do in terms of educating prospective homeowners about their rights and resources and also those that are facing foreclosure, what it is that they need to be doing. I mean, I, you know, listening to, um, you know, David and, and talking about the situation that, you, you know, you put forth in the book reminded me exactly of what happened to my best friend. You know, she uh, unfortunately um, lost her home um, and is now in a situation where because the mortgage product that was given to her and sold to her, um, you know, she went into foreclosure proceedings um, and is now have, you know, has such poor credit that she is unable to, you know, enter the housing market um, and is at the mercy of just sort of, you know, who can sublet at this point, you know? So those things are real. Those things are happening to everyday New Yorkers all the time um, who have been in those situations. And why it's so important for homeownership in New York City, you know, to think about why we protect those homeowners is also because those homeowners have a critical role in helping renters. So for instance, when we look at areas in New York City that are um, currently facing rezoning, um, East New York, Cypress Hills, um, places in, in the Bronx, all of those places are under increased, increased pressures. Um, and most of those homeowners are people of color. They are low-income, middle-income homeowners. Many of them are seniors, and a lot of them are being targeted with unfair products and being taken advantage of and not knowing what those rights are. So for us, it's not only making sure that homeowners um, can stay in their homes, but it's also the people that they have as renters, which is really, really critically important. Another thing is that we need to make sure that homeowners are not facing the type of lending discrimination that exists. So for what we're seeing is that even if you could get a product, that product isn't given to you, that product is not marketed to you, specifically for people of color um, and specifically for immigrant families as well that are looking to refinance. So as a whole, banks aren't lending, but as specifically when we're looking at the folks that are facing and in the courts right now, those folks are not giving fair access to um, those loan products. When you think about home ownership, it's a way of building generational wealth. Um, one statistic that I was looking at was that half the collective wealth of African-American families was stripped away during the Great Recession. Um, home equity for blacks declined by 28% between 2007 and 2010. And just, I believe, in Southeast Queens, um, there were about 9,000 specific foreclosures that took place just in Southeast Queens alone. So we see areas around the city that are particularly targeted and what needs to be done and what, needs, what resources need to be there. Um, we worked a lot with the Center for New York City Neighborhoods, legal services, and many advocates around the community um, and public advocate, you know, is really concerned about what do we do and what do we, what can we do to apply more pressure to the banks? You know, how do we get them to think about, um, you know, changing their lending terms and fixing these subprime mortgages, which are really robbing people of their ability to move up to the middle class? Um, so these are just some of the issues that, you know, we're very much concerned about. We're also very concerned about, you know, the city's ability to um, sell debt. And that's something that we work with the Center for New York City Neighborhoods on. Um, the city right now is engaged in working to refinance uh, tax liens and also property liens and, and, and getting those things in order so that homeowners are less likely to be um, at the mercy and going into um, foreclosure proceedings. So that's a big thing that actually causes a lot of people here when they're unable to pay their water bills, when they're unable to pay their taxes. Um, and that's something we've been um, particularly you know, working to make sure that it's protected. 
Um, but it's also about cutting through the red tape. You know, in our office, it's a lot of advocacy. The public advocate is essentially the watchdog for New York City. I don't think there's a public advocate elsewhere that I'm aware of. There's like utility advocates. But for New York City, it's pre pretty unique in terms of, you know, how we're able to effectively cut through that government red tape. Um, so it's really important that people know that they have the rights that they have, that they have the resources and access to that information, that that information translate not only um, to communities that are particularly affected by it, but also making sure that that information itself is actually translatable. When I'm looking through documents and I still think homeownership for me is going to be unattainable, just being a New Yorker resident. Um, but when you look through the paperwork and when you're looking through trying to figure out how do you even refinance something, how do you even do any of those things, you need a dictionary to, to figure out those terms. And if you don't have access to a legal, you know, someone in the legal profession, you are pretty much screwed. And those are the things that our New Yorkers are facing. And this is why it's important for everybody to really think about why this is so concerning. We have a middle class that we're trying to protect and home ownership is really one of those ways to bringing a lot of the people that we need to sustain our city. We can't have a city of have and have nots where everybody is just dependent on social welfare and, and can't make a living for themselves. So this is why it's really important that we look at home ownership as a vehicle to help um, you know, help bring some equity, help create that generational wealth that has been stripped as a result of these issues. So those are just some of the things we're advocating for and I'll be quiet now. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. Uh, Christy. Uh, well, uh, thanks to the public advocate for all your great um, advocacy on behalf of all of us. We really are really grateful for your office's leadership and thank you, Reed, for having us. Thank you, David, for writing this book. Um, I'll talk a little bit about Jay and legal services work in a bit, but uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I've been working on foreclosure issues in New York City since 2008, and in reading this book, uh, I was on jury duty, and I was one of those people that you see in jury duty who's like talking to herself, <laughs> pulling my hair in the corner, like rocking. It, you know, it was so, it's such a compelling read. It's amazing book, if you, if you guys can get a chance to get your hands on it. Uh, you really have right been there. able to, um, right, it's for sale. I think you can get it here. <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> buy the book. Uh, it's, it's so compelling because you really put the family stories and the humanity of foreclosure at the front of the book. And that's something that we try and do every day, but it's hard because the issues are so complex. And um, the other reason, uh, and, and again, we've been working on foreclosure issues every day, literally, since uh, uh, the summer of 2008. Uh, and our, our main uh, mission is to protect and promote affordable homeownership. And we started to do that uh, just by raising money to fund legal services and housing counseling. So, you know, the first thing I would say uh, for anybody with any of these questions around foreclosure or affordable homeownership is to uh, call the center and we'll try and get you hooked up with a, an expert, an advocate, somebody who can help demystify some of this. Uh, because as you'll see in the book, uh, you know, not only are the, the stories, you know, incredibly compelling and incredibly relatable, um, but they really show how the system is so complex and it's designed to be inaccessible to regular people. You know, not just, you know, working class people, but anybody. I mean, it's just really designed to be um, uh, really problematic for people to fight. And, and you start to understand the financial incentives for that, right? So as we've been trying to talk uh, to the public and stakeholders over many years, uh, to raise awareness about foreclosure issues, not only the numbers that Jay talked about, but just how hard it is to get a bank to give you a modification. People will say to us, well, 
why won't the homeowner just pay their mortgage? You know, so I don't understand. Why wouldn't the bank just give them a modification? It's in their, you know, best interest to yeah. take a, a reduced payment. You know, they, no banks want to foreclose. And so when you start to uncover the layers, you know, the servicer is not the bank. And, and, and David does an amazing job of laying out all the different actors in the securitization business. And you start to understand that the servicer is actually perversely incentivized, right? They're incentivized to slow down the process. They make money on the unpaid principal balance. Every day that a homeowner is foreclosure, their unpaid principal balance goes up. Their fees get laid on top of it. And, and that servicer is going to do better in the long run. And again, Jay's much more of an expert on this, so he can probably, uh, you know, cite you chapter and verse. But um, you Don't really want to get me going. <laughs> <laughs> you'll learn a lot. Um, but you really start to understand how even if a homeowner, and as as Lisa in the book was trying to, you know, get ahead of a problem, trying to make a deal, trying to pay a reduced payment that was going to save her home, the bank just had, or the servicer in this case, really had no. Uh, reason to work with her. And that's even before you get to the fraudulent or the mis, you know, um, uh, the problematic paperwork. Uh, so that alone is a huge thank you for writing this book. We really, all of us who've been working on this in New York City, and there, I just have to say, in New York City, you have some of the best uh, foreclosure prevention advocates in the country. So if you know anybody, if your neighbor, your friend, anybody who's having a problem, please call 311 or the center. You really, we, it's free help and it's great help. You know, a lot of people that we run into who have been scammed, we've been working on a lot of scam prevention with the public advocate say, well, if it's free, it can't be good. I'm telling you, these people are amazing. They're, you know, Ivy League educated lawyers uh, who have dedicated their lives to fighting uh, for people against the banks. And you know, uh, New York State, um, the, the, the network that we're, uh, that we're a part of is across New York State. So. If you call the homeowner hotline, we'll refer you to attorneys in New York, uh, all over New York State. And, and uh, nationwide, this is one of the variables. The, this isn't the landscape everywhere. Um, and in a lot of places, there aren't access to, to legal services. There aren't funded. Hard to get a lawyer. Hard to get, get information. Yeah, we have a much more robust community yeah. in New York. And we also have a much more litigious community. <laughs> yeah. So we are much less timid, timid about litigating against the banks. I'm pretty sure that there are people in Wells Fargo with a dartboard with my photo on it that they throw darts at. So we are, so, you know. So just, I just wanted to say one other thing about the timing of this. So um, I don't know if I missed this when I was late, I apologize. But one of the other reasons this is so important is this is the year that the federal uh, modification program sunsets. So HAMP and HARP, uh, making home affordable, I don't know if you've heard any of those terms but it sunsets at the end of 2016. So all this work that we've done to educate the, the judges and all this work that we've done to educate the servicers, because a lot of what we do is to educate the servicers on the guidelines that they're supposed to be following. Um, and you know, we've worked with New York State legislators. We have great servicing regulations in New York State. We've just been busting our butts for eight years to get people to comply with these laws. And now the, the primary program that supports this is gonna be sunsetting. So. Um, we're working really actively with folks in DC, uh, uh, like um, many of whom I'm sure were at the panel in DC, to try and uh, get a new loss mitigation system going. But that's why the access to great legal services and housing counseling is absolutely critical as we go forward. Um, the other piece I just wanted to throw out there is because a lot of the banks got beat up in the crisis and they decided mortgages were too dangerous for them to do business in anymore, uh, a lot of the servicers um, servicing mortgages these days are non-bank servicers. 
Uh, a lot of them are also owned by hedge funds. So when a lot of the lawyers that we work with go into the courts now, uh, they'll be facing against somebody from Caliber, um, you know, some of these other folks who really have no um, sort of basis or training in, in the loss mitigation system. So that's a big deal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I could probably write another chapter on that transfer from banks who were mortgage servicers over to non-banks like Nation Star and Aquin and, right. and all the shenanigans, you know, not honoring commitments that were made when they sold the mortgage servicing rights. There was actually a, a sort of in uh, capital uh, requirements, uh, mortgage servicing rights were suddenly uh, downgraded. And that's why they banks wanted to push them out. There was a sort of a, through Dodd-Frank, a perverse kind of reason to get these into non-banks. And these non-banks, if anything, are, are in some ways worse than, than the practices, already bad practices that we saw of, of the banks. So that, that's a key issue that, that uh, you know, I mean, obviously we have CFPB now, so it, it is Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're covered in some ways at the federal level, certainly more than they were. So it's a little better, but that's also post, you know, it's after the fact in many ways. Uh, so, so I'll just say two yeah. more things and then I'll stop. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, just to mention the CFPB, uh, as everybody knows, we're in a very divided uh, um, political climate. The CFPB is constantly under attack. It is really the only cop on Wall Street that we have right now. Um, so we're constantly trying to protect it. There was a piece put out by Hen Sarling, a piece of legislation this week to try and undermine um, Dodd-Frank and the CFPB. So that's one thing that we fight on uh, a lot. And then also um, for folks to think about, uh, mortgages are now being transferred. You know, there's a lot in here about the transfer of, of, um, of title, but a lot of uh, our um, federal insurers, Fannie and Freddie and FHA, are selling distress notes. So uh, we also want folks who might be in foreclosure to, to understand what it means when their mortgage gets sold uh, to an, an, uh, an investor that's basically trying to figure out how to make money off the transfer of that. So we've been working on that at, uh, as well. I, um, I would just say to end, uh, getting access to free legal services and housing counseling is not the, the entire answer, but it, it's a really important part of the problem. So we really encourage folks to support that, that funding and those services. Thank you. Um, all right, well, thank you all for uh, joining us uh, this evening up here. Thank you for coming. David, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.